I'm recording this on May 4th and there have already been 12 mass shootings in the US in, in this month so far. And by the time you listen to this, there will doubtless have been many, many more. Welcome to another episode of America Explained, the podcast that brings the important voices and perspectives shaping American politics, foreign policy and culture to an international audience. so often the case gun violence has really been in the news in the united states in the recent months and the reason for this is that this year there's been a number of really high profile mass shootings including one in atlanta in which about eight people and six of them were asian women were killed and another at a warehouse in indianapolis shortly after that but beyond these events which really dominated the news cycle and you know they got a lot of attention because they were so shocking there's also been a steady drip of lower profile events so just listen to a few of these stories on april 15th in pensacola florida six people were shot in an apartment building the same day in washington dc four people including a teenage girl were shot april 13th baltimore a dice game went bad four people were shot april 11th seattle a toddler and three other people shot and april 10th memphis tennessee also four people shot including a mother and child that's just in one five-day period that all of those events happened and you could pick pretty much any five-day period in the year so far and find a similar grim catalog of events At one point in mid-April, there'd been a mass shooting every single day so far in America in 2021. This comes on top of 2020, which was already one of the worst years for American gun violence on record. Nearly 20,000 people were killed in gun violence in the US last year, and nearly 40,000 were injured in that same period. Despite all this, there's little prospect right now of any new gun control legislation passing through this Congress. And the conservative Supreme Court has just taken the first step towards making guns even more prevalent in American society. So these are the developments that we're going to be talking about on the episode today. Thanks for tuning in to America Explained. And if you enjoyed this episode, please tell a friend. Remember also that you can find me on Twitter at Andy Gort. So that's at A-N-D-Y-G-A-W-T. So I don't get all historical on this show too often, despite being a historian. But I think it's interesting to start this discussion by talking a little bit about the history of the battle over gun rights in the United States. Everyone knows, or you know, people tend to know, that the debate over gun rights in America goes back to the Second Amendment to the Constitution. And they know that there's this kind of struggle between rural conservatives, um, you know, who live in the countryside and, you know, love to have guns for hunting and, and feel very strongly that they need them to hold off a tyrannical government. Then they also know that there's, you know, more liberal Americans in cities and suburbs who don't tend to view guns as that important and view them mostly as a threat and often want to kind of regulate and control guns. And this kind of struggle between rural Americans and urban and suburban Americans over guns can seem so elemental and basic to American politics that it's really easy to assume that it's always been this way. But actually it hasn't. For most of American history, the Second Amendment was considered a kind of strange historical curiosity and people didn't spend their time having political arguments about guns. And well, okay, let's just back up a minute. What is the Second Amendment? So 
The second amendment is is an amendment to the constitution which re, which reads the following. These th this is the sentence that has created all of this controversy. The sentence reads a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. That's the Second Amendment. And for most of American history, that was interpreted as meaning, you know, kind of what it sounds like when you read it for the first time, which is that citizens had the right to keep and bear arms as part of an organized militia. So it wasn't interpreted as being about the individual right to keep arms but rather the right of citizens to have weapons that they might use when serving in a militia. So to kind of wrap your head around this, it's important to remember two things about very early America, kind of the period around the time of the founding and, and when the Second Amendment to the Constitution was passed. The first was that the country was founded after a rebellion against what was considered to be a tyrannical British government. And the second was that it had no regular military and yet was surrounded by what it considered to be threats. So, you know, the, the British were still in Canada um, the British and the French were on Caribbean islands to the east. There were Native Americans, you know, everywhere, um, north, west, and south of the colonies. And this kind of perception of being surrounded by threats meant that early America really relied on a militia consisting of all the adult male members of a community to have weapons which could be used for self-defense, either against governmental tyranny, so, you know, this, this fear that the American government might become tyrannical in the way that the British government had become, so wanting to retain this option of revolution again if it became necessary, and also needing a militia to protect against outside threats. So for literally centuries after the founding, this was all the Second Amendment was interpreted as applying to. And so this was actually called the militia theory, the idea that the Second Amendment just meant the citizens could have access to such firearms as they might use for military purposes as part of a regular militia. Didn't mean that individuals had the right to have any sort of firearm that they wanted or the right to carry it around wherever they went. And as late as 1991, Warren Berger, who's one of the most prominent conservative legal thinkers in recent American history, a man who Richard Nixon put on the Supreme Court, well, he actually said that the idea that the Second Amendment guaranteed an individual right to own and carry guns was, quote, one of the greatest pieces of fraud on the American public I have seen in my lifetime. So that just shows you how recently, you know, the, the, this idea that the Second Amendment meant basically anything goes in terms of owning and carrying guns, even, you know, this was questioned even in the most conservative of conservative legal circles until very recently. Here's another crazy thing. The National Rifle Association, the, you know, this powerful lobbying group that I'm sure we've all heard of that opposes pretty much any control measures, any attempts to control guns, they used to be in favor of gun control. The NRA barely talked about the Second Amendment at all for most of its early history, and it used to be a kind of lifestyle organization for hunters, you know, just, uh, you know, did magazines for people who liked to go hiking in the wilderness and hunting with their guns. It wasn't at all associated with this kind of aggressive politics of making guns central to American identity and really arguing for the right of anyone to own a gun. 
The head of the NRA in 1934 actually said, quote, I have never believed in the general practice of carrying guns. I think it should be sharply restricted. And the NRA supported federal gun control legislation, for instance, in the 1960s. In fact, the, the politics of gun control in the 60s were almost the opposite of what they are today in a really interesting way. At that time, it was actually African Americans and white proponents of civil rights in the American South who were at the forefront of pushing for gun rights in order to protect themselves from state repression and from violence that was often inflicted on civil rights workers in, in the South in the era of Jim Crow. Members of the, the Black Panthers, a, a radical African-American group, made a show of carrying firearms openly around cities in California in the 1960s as they monitored the police in order to prevent police brutality. And in 1967, 30 members of the Black Panthers rolled up to the California State House armed with pistols and shotguns and rifles to carry out an armed protest. And Ronald Reagan, who's, you know, kind of the honored granddaddy of today's right wing and was then the governor of California, soon signed a law restricting gun ownership in California because there was this kind of panic over the fact that these African-American groups that were perceived as really radical and kind of a threat to the state government were carrying weapons and they wanted to stop that. So, you know, the at the time, conservative politics leaned towards actually having gun control as a way of keeping guns out of the hands out of groups like the Black Panthers. And Ronald Reagan actually said at the time that he, he quote, saw no reason why on the street today a citizen should be carrying loaded weapons. So this was completely different to the gun politics that we have today. And after the break, I'm gonna talk about how the modern gun rights debate took shape. <laughs> begins in the 1970s and the 80s when American conservatives started to organize themselves much more strategically to achieve goals and particularly legal goals. So the 60s and the 70s had been an era of very liberal Supreme Courts. You know, this was the time when a constitutional right to abortion was guaranteed with the case Roe v. Wade in the 1970s. This was the time when Ruth Bader Ginsburg was winning these big victories for women's equality. And, you know, conservative thinkers and conservative lawyers started to want to get organized to, to fight back and win their own victories in the courts. Up until this point, there hadn't really been an organized conservative legal movement that set about to generate cases that would allow big changes in American law that would be in favor of conservative priorities. But in 1982, an organization was formed basically to do just that, and it was called the Federalist Society. The Federalist Society is a kind of training ground and talent spot of conservative lawyers and judges, and its main aim is to get conservative judges into the court in order to advance conservative priorities. It's incredibly, incredibly influential. Donald Trump basically outsourced his judicial appointments to the Federalist Society. He, he actually just basically took a list that was provided to him by the Federalist Society and made those people judges. And this was really important um, in, term, in terms of getting conservatives to support Donald Trump. You know, Donald Trump's this guy who had been a liberal for most of his life, you know, he, he clearly wasn't against abortion. He'd had 
extramarital affairs all the time. You know, he's not culturally conservative at all. And one of the ways that he was able to win the support of cultural conservatives and religious conservatives was basically outsourcing his judicial appointments to the Federalist Society. And this made the organization, which was already very influential, even more influential during the Trump presidency. So Federalist Society lawyers and judges generally advanced what they call an originalist interpretation of the Constitution. This means that they think that the most important factor shaping American law should be what the original founders intended. So basically, when the Constitution was written, what did the people who were writing it believe it should mean? They don't agree with um, people going back with a more modern perspective and looking at it in a different light from this more modern perspective and then trying to figure out how it applies to, this, to today's society. Instead, they think we should stick as closely as possible to what the original founders actually intended. And because the founders lived over 200 years ago, and, you know, there was so much about the modern world which they couldn't have predicted. So if this judicial philosophy were to be applied, this would mean really, really profound changes to American society. So originalists, for instance, reject the idea of a constitutional right to abortion. They argue that the founders cannot possibly have intended this right to exist because safe abortion is a modern invention. So, you know, the fact that this wasn't explicitly provided for in the constitution means that it shouldn't be a constitutional right. And they're opposed to these efforts to look at the Constitution and say, ah, well, if you applied what it says to this new era in which we do have safe, effective abortion, then we should think that there is a right to that based on the Constitution. They say, if the founders didn't write it, then it's not our business to interpret them. We should just go by what they said. The rise of this new conservative jurisprudence meant a really big renewed interest in the original meaning of the Second Amendment. And at the same time, this kind of crossed over with a new populism on the American right, one that was based on, on white, often rural working class voters, many of whom owned guns and were starting to see gun control measures as part of a general effort by a tyrannical government to restrict people's liberties. So, you know, these gun control measures, like the one in California that I mentioned, had been launched to crack down on groups like the Black Panthers, but it also had an effect for these rural gun-owning voters that no one was really thinking about when they passed these original measures, you know, which goes to show how, how different that gun politics was to today when, you know, nobody can ignore this very organized conservative pro-gun movement. But these, these rural white voters who, who were increasingly voting Republican, and the, although they were also voting, voting Democrat, started to really push back against gun control. You know, they really noticed the fact that, that this legislation that had been aimed at groups like the Black Panthers had a big impact on them, and they wanted to do something about that. So this alliance of conservative lawyers and white working class voters was, was what launched the modern Second Amendment movement. And actually for, for a long time, you know, that movement was much more bipartisan than it is today. Everything in American politics has become so incredibly polarized. So, you know, now Republicans are basically the pro-gun party and Democrats are the gun control party. One um, one holdover of, of, of this older era is actually Bernie Sanders's position on uh, guns. So Sanders represents Vermont, which is a very white, pretty rural state. 
And he actually has, for most of his career, not been particularly in favor of gun control, certainly not so much as other more liberal elements of the Democratic Party, because the sort of voters who he represented tended to also be pro-gun. Sanders is kind of a vestige of an earlier era in that respect, but um, nowadays the issue is very polarized. From the 1980s to the present day, there's been a huge shift away from gun control laws in the US, basically due to the Second Amendment movement. So around about like the mid-1980s, most states didn't allow individuals to carry a concealed handgun or they made it very difficult for them to get a license to do so. Today, the reverse is true. So, so many more states today allow people to own guns and to carry guns and also to carry them concealed. But easily the biggest success of the Second Amendment movement came in 2008 when the Supreme Court, in a decision uh, called DC versus Heller, so that was District of Columbia versus Heller, found for the first time that Americans had a constitutional right to have a gun, but only at home for self-defense. And combined with another case in 2010, which extended this ruling beyond Washington, D.C. to all of the states, this meant that states and cities could no longer prevent people from having guns at home. So you have a constitutional right to have a handgun in your house. And that was the first time in American history that such a clear constitutional right to gun ownership had been established. Up until now, you know, state, oh, sorry, up until then, states and cities had all been setting their own policies and it wasn't really clear, you know, what, what the constitutional right to having a gun was. But 2008, this case DC versus Heller, set down for the first time that you can have a handgun at home and there's nothing that any state law or city law or federal law can do about that. Just a week or so ago, the Supreme Court decided to hear another case which might create a similar constitutional right to, to carry a handgun anywhere that you were to go in America. So meaning that no state could disallow that. Now, to me, this constitutional debate over, over the question, it's one that is very misleading in a sense. It's very important because this is what actually sets gun policy, but I also think it's misleading. And the reason for that is that I actually think that the constitutional case for thinking that the founders did actually intend the Second Amendment to guarantee individuals the right to bear arms is very strong. But the question is, should this be the guide to gun policy today? Because the flip side to originalism is that the founders couldn't possibly imagine the kind of weapons that we have today. You know, today, anyone can buy for about $500 the sorts of guns which uh, someone called Stephen Paddock, the perpetrator of the 2017 mass shooting in Las Vegas, he used guns that, you know, cost about $500 to kill over 60 people and injure over 400 in just 10 minutes. And the sheer toll of the damage inflicted on society when modern weapons of war are, are available so cheaply to anyone has created a new situation which requires new law to manage. You can't just rely on these words that were written 200 years ago by people who never could have imagined the destructive power that one citizen now has access to. You can't rely on these laws to set gun policy in a modern country. But unfortunately, with a conservative Supreme Court majority that's looking to expand gun rights and no reforms able to get through Congress while the filibuster is still in place, there's really little prospect of change on the horizon. 
And it's really another example of how, through institutions like the filibuster and like gerrymandering and like the Electoral College, conservatives exercise a disproportionate influence over American life. In, in the latest polls, 57% of Americans think that gun laws should be made more strict, 34% think they should be kept the same, and just 9% think they should be made less strict. But that's exactly the outcome that the country is barreling towards, you know, to do just what that 9% of the country wants and ignoring the majority who want to do something different. That's despite the fact that legislation that restricts access to guns really can make a difference. Sometimes people will throw up their hands and say, well, there's already so many guns in circulation in the US, you know, the horse is already bolted, restrictions won't work. You know, people will even argue that you need the good guys to be able to get access to guns because the bad guys already have guns. So actually, if you, you know, you, you restrict people from buying guns, that might lead to more violence and more mass shootings. But this isn't true. Just the other day, a new research paper came out in the Journal of Public Health, which looked at US states between 1991 and 2017, and found that tighter gun regulation was associated with fewer murders and fewer suicides. So regulations that limit access to firearms do lead to fewer deaths. We don't have to kind of wait to get to some kind of unobtainable utopian future where there are no guns in circulation in the US. It's just about restricting the ability of people who don't already have them and want to use them for nefarious purposes from buying them. And people are real, you know, people are going to die because of this impending Supreme Court decision that's loosening access to guns and making it harder for the states to put in place the regulations that the American people want and the American people need to prevent more gun deaths. It's real easy to forget this because, you know, gun deaths, even mass shootings, have become so normalized. I'm recording this on May 4th, and there have already been 12 mass shootings in the US in, in this month so far. And by the time you listen to this, there will doubtless have been many, many more. That's all we have time for this episode. Thanks for listening to America Explained. You can contact us on producer at america-explained.com or through the America Explained Facebook page. I'm your host, Andy Gawthorpe. Designer and advisor is Janice Killian. Music by Soundwave. America Explained is an APD media production. See you next time.